I would not have wanted my daughters to go on a date with the teenage version of their father. High school Max was a mess. My brother and I created all new ways of causing trouble. We mastered the art of carousing, nightclubbing, and drinking. He created for me a false ID so that though underage, I could go anywhere I wanted to go. And we thought we were fooling my dad, but my dad was never fooled. He was raised in a world of alcohol. His father was a heavy drinker and several of his siblings ended up being treated for alcoholism. And so he was never fooled. And he tried everything. He grounded us. He took away the keys. He gave us extra chores. But nothing worked. Nothing worked until one particular Saturday morning, he sat my brother, me, sat my brother and me on the couch. And he gave us an ultimatum. Of course, I can't recall it word for word, but if I try to reconstruct, I can see his face. And what I sense is not anger, but matter of fact, just a statement of fact. And the message went something like this. You boys are on the wrong path. And one of these days you're gonna get caught. You're gonna get pulled over. You're gonna get a DWI. You're gonna be caught in a nightclub underage. And here's what's going to happen. The sheriff is gonna take you to jail. And he's gonna call me Small West Texas town, my dad knew the sheriff, the sheriff knew my dad. He's gonna call me and boys, I'm not coming for you. I'm not coming. I'm gonna leave you in jail. You need to know that. He wasn't threatening. He was matter of fact. He was laying out the consequence of our bad behavior. It got my attention. I have reflected on that conversation quite a bit over the last few weeks as I have thought about this particular topic because our father did the same. Although my dad could only anticipate what would happen our heavenly father who knows the end from the beginning can see it. He can see it. And anyone who finds themselves in this time of tribulation that's coming will do so in spite of being warned. It was not my father's will that his sons go to jail. And to be quite clear, it is not our heavenly father's will that anyone experience the chaos that's destined for those who turn against God. He beckons us to live with him. He beckons us to enjoy his splendor forever. 
He beckons us to receive a a glorified body and to reign with him on a perfected earth and then enter an eternal state. Everything that God is doing is an evangelistic appeal. Everything. The eclipse. Every sunrise. Every spring morning. Every singing bird. Every slapping wave. Every floating cloud. God speaks through nature. God speaks through scripture, overheard, casually, studied intently. Speaking through grandmothers over their grandkids, through sermons overheard on a radio station. The Holy Spirit is speaking to our world all the time, incessantly, because he does not want anyone to be lost. And he issues this invitation over and over and over and over. And millions, maybe billions have said yes. And we are awaiting our transport into the presence of Christ. But millions, maybe billions are willingly wicked. They are turning their back on invitations that God sends. And this rejection incurs profound consequences. Again, just like my dad, giving my brother and me the outcome of our behavior, so God has spelled it out for us. He does this many times in scripture. The Apostle Paul's two paragraphs on this, I think are condensed versions of what is later described in the book of Revelation. So I'm choosing to take us through Thessalonians, uh, the, th- the letter to the Thessalonians to help us understand it. Let's get to work. Brothers and sisters, we have something to say about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the time we will meet together with him. Do not become easily upset in your thinking or afraid if you hear that the day of the Lord has already come. Someone may have said this in a prophecy or in a message or in a letter as if it came from us. The Thessalonian Christians were nervous. They were concerned that they were living in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a phrase that the Bible uses to describe a time of tribulation, a time of great tribulation. You and I are living in the day of grace. We have never known the wrath of God. We have felt the consequence of our misbehavior, but we have never known what Noah and his generation knew, not Noah, but generation of Noah knew the wrath of God. Sodom and Gomorrah felt the wrath of God. The Egyptians under the leadership of Pharaoh in the days of Moses knew the wrath of God. You and I have yet to know and will never know the wrath of God. Why? Because we trust Jesus Christ who felt the wrath of God for us. When he died on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt the distance. He felt the separation. He felt the consequence. Even though he was never a sinner, he died for sinners and he felt what I would have felt. Consequently, uh, church age is a day of grace. This is the day of mercy. The day of the Lord is a phrase used to describe God's judgment. In 2 Thessalonians, this phrase, day of the Lord, appears 
twice to refer to a specific time, a day when the turning away from God happens and the man of evil who is on his way to hell appears. He will be against and put himself above any so-called God or anything that people worship. And that man of evil will even go into God's temple and sit there and say that he is God. Paul is speaking here about the Antichrist. We have discussed the Antichrist in earlier messages. And he's talking about the blasphemous act of the Antichrist to enter the temple, which presupposes that there will be a construction of the temple on the temple mount at some point. And he will enter that temple and he will claim to be God and he will claim the worship of people And God rejectors will honor him as God and that great tribulation, well, all hell will break loose on earth. This tribulation will begin at some point after the rapture. The rapture is that moment and it could happen at any moment, it's imminent. It requires no sign, no signal. We're not looking for anything. It could happen before I finish this sentence. It didn't, but it could have. In an event that will stun the planet, Jesus will descend with a shout. He will rescue his children from the coming wrath. From one second to the next, families will be missing family members. Offices will be absent workers. Graveyards will be pockmarked with open graves. Hospitals will have no explanation for the suddenly vacant beds. School principals won't know what happened to teachers and students that were here one moment and gone the next. Now, one might assume that the unraptured or those that are left behind would see the common denominator of all the missing people. They would look around and say, well, they were of different skin color. Yeah, different ages. Yeah, different economic level. Yeah, different nations, different nationalities. Yeah, but the one thing they all had in common is they were believers in Jesus The one thing they had in common is they trusted Christ for salvation. So we would expect the earthbound, the unraptured, to find Bibles and read them, find audio sermons and listen to them, rummage through churches and find printed sermons. But they won't. Jesus, in speaking about that era, said the love of many will grow cold the love of many will grow cold. So rather than turn to God, because of the rapture, people will turn away from God. Now, how could this be? How could they be untouched and unmoved by what will be the most dramatic evacuation in history? Well, the apostle Paul tells us. He he places the blame at the feet of a culprit that he calls the man of evil, another phrase for the Antichrist. That day of the Lord will not come until the turning away from God happens and the man of evil who is on his way to hell appears. What happens to society when millions, maybe billions of people, taxpaying, hardworking, God-seeking people suddenly vanish? What's gonna happen? 
Who's gonna take up the slack? Who's gonna step into the vacuum? Who will explain their disappearance? Who will stem the sudden tidal wave of fear that will surely encompass the globe? Well, the man of evil will, the Antichrist. Flowing oratory, satanic power, he will come and offer easy solutions and make exorbitant promises. A paragraph by Chuck Swindoll is a helpful one. Chuck writes, this man will emerge after the rapture probably to calm the chaotic waters troubled by the unexplained departure of so many Christians. He will be primed and ready to speak. He will stand not only before a nation but a world and win their approval. Like Hitler, he will emerge on a scene of such political and economic chaos The people will see him as a man of vision with pragmatic answers and power to unite the world. We've never seen anyone like him. This man will have no moral compass. He'll have no conscience, no sense of right and wrong, no regard for God or people. He will be against and put himself up against, up any, sorry. He will be against and put himself above any so-called God or anything that people worship. And that man of evil will even go into God's temple and sit there and say that he is God. Jesus called that the abomination of desolation. Daniel chapter nine referred to it as well. Now please note, Satan is waiting on the rapture. He's waiting on the rapture. And he can't move until that rapture occurs. He's waiting for the shepherd to lead the flock to safe pasture. And once they're gone, he's going to appear at the gate. He will enter the body of the Antichrist and he will do then what he did with Judas on the day of betrayal. He will inhabit that person. And the seven years spoken of by Daniel will begin. Our days are dark and difficult. But without the power of the spirit and the influence of the church, the world will be in free fall. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter two and verse seven. The secret power of evil is already working in the world, but there is one who is stomping that power. Who do you think that is? That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is stomping the power of evil, and he will continue to stop it until he is taken out of the way. When the church is raptured, the restrainer, the restraining work of the Holy Spirit will be lifted from the earth. So with the Holy Spirit not holding the evil back, with the salt and light of society, the church gone, the world will fall into certain free fall. I know things are dark and difficult now, but without the presence of the Holy Spirit and the influence of the church, when the Holy Spirit steps away, what will the world be like? Well, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write that the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who will perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So there will be a great spirit of deception that will take place and the day of grace will become the day of the Lord. The book of Revelation 
is dedicated in large part to describing the day of the Lord or that seven year period. It describes war. It describes people who will be killed. It speaks of famine and uncontrollable inflation. Many people will perish. Those who do come to faith, and there will be those, many of those will become martyrs. Massive earthquakes, sun, moon, and stars will be darkened. The sun will scorch, and great many people will be killed. It is no wonder that Jesus said this is going to be trouble on a scale beyond what the world has ever seen or will see again. Just studying these scriptures sobers me. In fact, even as I'm talking, I'm feeling kind of a trembling in my heart. I am so concerned that someone here might not accept Christ and be left to endure that. Why do we study this, Max? Why do I need to know? I am a Christian. I'm gonna be raptured. I'm not here for that. Yeah, praise God. So why are we studying it? Well, because it's in God's word. He wants us to know about it. He speaks about it quite often. I count at least 36 different names of it in the Bible. The Olivet Discourse, which is Jesus' final sermon, is dedicated to preparing us for the tribulation. It matters to God. And since it matters to God, it needs to matter to us. It's terrible, but it's also instructive. Let it remind you of a few things. Number one, let it remind you that God hates sin. He just hates it. He just hates it. He hates what it does to people. He hates how it turns us into animals, into weapons, into bloodthirsty people. He hates it. And let it remind you that Satan is a deceiver. He's a deceiver. He's lied. He's never spoken a word of truth. Never. He does not know how. If he spoke a word of truth, he would throw up because he doesn't know how not to speak lies. And he's lying to you. He's lying to me. And we choose. Are we going to hear the voice of God or hear the voice of Satan? And he's going to go on a rampage during that seven-year tribulation. But even then, he's going to stumble. Even then, and I can't wait until next week because there is good news in the middle of the tribulation. There will be a revival unlike any that the world has ever seen. But that's for next week. We need to come to terms with the tribulation. We need to let it remind us that God hates sin. We need to let it remind us that Satan can be deceiving. But there's one final reason for me to discuss it with you, and then I'll be done. Here it is. I would love to think that everybody who is within earshot of my voice is saved, but I know better. I know better. I thank you for being here. 
But some of you are lost. You're lost as a goose. You don't have any idea about eternal security. You have never agreed that you need a savior. And I'm begging you. I'm, my, my dad warned me, not because he didn't love me. In fact, because he did love me. And your heavenly father is warning you, not because he doesn't love you, but because he loves you. He cherishes you. He has a destiny for you to reign with him forever and ever in a perfect world. Don't turn your back on that invitation. And don't think for a second that you'll, well, reject Christ now, but I'll say yes to him during the tribulation. The tribulation is going to be a time of murderous impact upon saints of God, people who give their hearts to Christ, many of whom will become martyrs. You do not want to be there during that time. I know you're hearing this message thinking, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. It can sound fantastical. But friend, I don't know any other way to interpret these teachings of Scripture. And so I'm begging you to be right with God. I feel such a heaviness in my heart today in case somebody is lost. And as we see the world beginning to shape up, as the Scripture says, with all the enemies of Israel getting in position, I don't know if I'll have another opportunity. So I'm just making sure that you know I don't want you to pass through that tribulation. There's one final reason. I said that last one was the final one, I know. (laughs) There's a chance that this sermon will be heard during the tribulation. Now think about it. When we're raptured, we're leaving our Bibles here. We're leaving our sermon notes here. We're leaving our audio messages here. We're leaving our video messages here. And there is a chance that somebody that we don't even know right now will stumble into the Oak Hills Church trying to find an answer for that sudden disappearance of all the people and they'll rummage through our audio and they'll they'll come across a message like this. And I want that person to know the promise that Jesus made prophetically He said, he who endures to the end shall be saved. So to that person, I say, don't give up. Don't give up. There is hope even in the darkest hour. I guess we should pray. Heavenly Father, have mercy now upon us as we receive this message. Grant us great strength to process it and understanding. Let your Holy Spirit Bring a spirit of revelation so that we can understand things we've never even considered and we can be ready. Through Jesus we pray, amen. We're going to offer a prayer of salvation. I'm inviting everyone to say this prayer with me or I will lead us in this prayer. I'm inviting everyone. And this is is your first time to pray a prayer of salvation, we'll ask you to stand up and we'll applaud and we'll give you a Bible and somebody will invite you out to lunch. I just know that. (laughs) Let's pray together, shall we? Jesus, I'm not perfect for I have sinned, but I believe in you. Save me, change me, forgive me, 
I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen.